0: This video is brought to you by movie a curated streaming service that premieres a new film every day. You're one of us now, a life for a life. Dune starts out as a heroic narrative about Paul Atreides. Director Denis Villeneuve describes Part 1 as the story of Paul going from being a boy to an adult, but there's a lot more going on under the surface. First of all, because the story of the book is separated into two movies, Part 1 plants the seeds of a tragedy, befitting a character who was directly inspired by classical figures from Greek mythology. From the beginning of the movie, there's a sense of foreboding around the Atreides family, who seem doomed to disaster from the moment they're ordered to take over Arrakis especially because Duke Leto's honor won't allow him to not walk into a trap. The great houses look to us for leadership. By taking Arrakis from the Harkonnens and making it ours, he sets the stage for a war. Leto's honor won't allow him to choose differently, but Paul himself displays similar degrees of stubbornness. Defiance in the eyes, like his father. Where his father refuses to push back against galactic politics, Paul willfully accepts the bloody future he sees as the prophesied Kwisatz Haderach by pretending that he has no way to change it. Paul sees himself as fundamentally passive, powerless to stop the future where he is the one with power. But is that really the truth? Like an ancient Greek tragic hero, Paul has options of avoiding his inevitable downfall, but instead leans into his fatal flaws, his desires for power and revenge, and his justification that he's controlled by the future. And so he ends up deciding to become all of the things he's afraid of. Here's our take on the deeper messages of the ending of Dune Part 1. Somebody help me, please. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and click the bell to get notified about all our new videos. We know from early in Dune that Paul is special. He survives the test of the Jabbar, proving an almost superhuman ability to tolerate pain, and he's in touch with some version of the future. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? As he spends more time on Arrakis, he sees more and more of the future, in particular, a future where he leads a galactic war that claims billions of lives. Although he is horrified by these visions, Paul still chooses the path toward his violent future, fitting himself into the religious stories that preceded his arrival. Furman, speak of the Lusanne al gaib Careful. A voice from the outer world who will lead them to paradise. We know that he is aware of what might emerge from that choice. So while the ending of Dune Part 1 feels at first glance like an uplifting arc of Paul coming into his own as a hero and embracing the Fremen as equals unlike most of his culture, it's in fact a tragedy. And the tragedy is that Paul chooses to shed his identity as an individual and fulfill various grand prophecies in order to achieve his own ends. Paul knows that he doesn't have to be any of the things that people expect him to be. He can simply be Paul. If your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be, my son." And in fact, his choices put him at odds with being Paul Atreides at all. The voices Paul hears that appear to be distillations of his spice-fueled visions tell him that he must become something else. He has to die to be reborn. Paul has visions of the future granted to him by the Spice and by his Bene Gesserit training, Dune crucially does not endorse the idea that the prophecies are true, or that there is any higher power guiding Paul's actions beyond the institutional calculations of the Bene Gesserit. Instead, Paul is isolated, given role models like his mother, his father, and Duncan Idaho in order to choose his own path. As Villeneuve describes it, Paul is a very lonely kid at the beginning, a lonely teenager that has no friends but his mentors, his teachers. Though his father insists that he does not need to be a leader, he still chooses it. If you're looking to lose yourself in other fascinating, many-layered movies, this month you should check out Movie's incredible series festival focus, Cannes Film Festival. The Cannes Takeover features some of our all-time favorite movies here at The Take, including Andrea Arnold's coming-of-age drama Fish Tank and David Lynch's mind-bending Mulholland Drive. As a special gift to our viewers, Mubi is offering 30 days free, so click the link in the description below to start streaming now. If you're anything like me, these days you may be totally uninspired and stuck when it comes to figuring out what to watch next. Subscribing to Mubi completely fixes that. Their team of curators handpicks every film they show, so there's always something new to discover. They seriously love movies as much as we do, so their recommendations are always top-notch. Click the link in the description below to get 30 days of Mubi now. Dune Part 1 ends with Paul deciding to stay on Arrakis, suggesting the full potential of what life could look like for him among the Fremen. My road leads into the desert. I can see it but along the way to get here, Villeneuve's directorial choices double down on the nature of choice, and the way that Paul could choose other futures. While he feels that his visions of the future are a given prophecy that must come to pass, Paul actually sees visions of other potential futures, too. In one vision, Paul sees the Fremen Jamis as a friend, who might be able to teach him how to survive on Arrakis. You have much to learn, and I will show you the ways of the desert. Instead, Villeneuve ends Dune Part 1 with a fight between Paul and Jamis, and Paul kills him in a duel. This mirrors Paul's repeated visions of Zendaya's Chani, who we see in dreams throughout the movie before Paul finally meets her toward the end. Paul doesn't know anything specific about Chani, but he knows she's important and pursues her accordingly. Much like Paul's other visions, Chani is merely presented as a focus for his efforts, without a clear direction for what their relationship, which will be fleshed out more in Part 2, will actually look like. Although Paul appears to have noble intentions toward the Fremen, his fight with Jamis is confirmation of the ways he ultimately decides to manipulate them in keeping with the Bene Gesserit's plans, even if he isn't manipulating them toward the Bene Gesserit's ultimate goals. In this sense, he is still taking after his father father. Even Leto, despite his honor, sees Arrakis as something to use quickly and be done with. What do they say about this hellhole again? It's a shower, you scrub your ass with sand, my lord. That's what they say. That's what they say. Notably, the first of Paul's superhuman abilities we see isn't his gift of diplomacy, or even his visions of the future. It's the voice, a way to force other people to do what he wants. Give me, Give me the water. water. It makes sense that The Voice is the way Paul is most active in the movie, and the center of his primary conflict with the Harkonnen forces as he tries to escape with Jessica. Because ultimately, Paul is motivated by revenge and is willing to use other people to achieve that goal. Once the Harkonnens and the Emperor's forces kill his father, he commits to getting the power to stop them by any means necessary. In this respect, Paul is similarly motivated to the person who eventually gets his father killed, Dr. Yue, who betrays the Atreides family in order to save his kidnapped wife. I had no choice. The Harkonnens have my wife. I will buy her freedom. And you are the price. And Paul is not exempt from the impulse to war that drives the rest of the characters. Even his teachers tell him that the Harkonnens are enemies to be defeated at all costs. I've never met Harkonnens before, I have. They're not human, they're brutal! For fans of the books, Paul's heroic status is effective precisely because we know where he ends up. Villeneuve compares Paul to Michael Corleone from The Godfather, a young man who also reluctantly takes up his father's mantle with disastrous results. To Villeneuve, Paul is someone that has a very tragic fate, and he will become something that he was not wishing to become. You did this to me! You Bene Gesserit made me a freak! In the same way that The Godfather ends up with Michael Corleone taking up his father's mantle only for us to see how far he's fallen in Part 2, Dune Part 1 ends with Paul definitely embarking on a path, one that will presumably bear violent fruit in Part 2. Though Dune initially appears to be a story about a boy who is molded into a hero in a trial by fire, the characters are really at the mercy of forces bigger than any individual. That's exemplified by the way that, for most of the movie, Villeneuve only gives us brief glimpses of the franchise's most iconic symbol, the enormous sandworms. Paul tries to push back against these forces alone and ultimately winds up going along with the winds. Like Neo in The Matrix, Paul is used as part of another system of control. You're a lost boy hiding in a hole in the ground. At the beginning of the movie, Paul sees visions of Duncan's death and eventually of the holy war he will wage in his father's name. But like the viewer, he's only seen half the story, and as Villeneuve appears poised to follow the books with an emphasis on Paul's own violent, tragic choices, that story seems like it will become much darker in part two. This is only the beginning. This is The Take on your favorite movies, shows, and pop culture. Thanks for watching, and don't forget to subscribe.